baskets, please do not feel compelled to give. If you're a visitor here, please save your gifts for your regular place of worship. But if you're family here, thank you for giving it. Keeps the bills paid, keeps us running pretty smoothly. Today, we are putting the finishing touches on what's been a series, a teaching series on the topic of wisdom that we actually started clear back in January, and we're finally going to finish it. It's a journey through the Old Testament books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and it's been a blast, and I hope today is no different. So let's look at a few verses about dogs and lions and bread and gimpy grasshoppers, and it's all in there, trust me, all right? Let's start with dogs and lions. This is out of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, just verse 4. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Now, when you first read this verse, when you're reading through the Bible, you're thinking, weird verse, and you just kind of check it off as weirdness, okay? But it's actually quite meaningful. So let's first focus on lions. For ancient people, they basically thought of lions in the same way that we do. Lions are kind of royal and regal and, and noble animals. They're the kings of the savannah. In fact, oftentimes in Scripture, when it mentions lion, it's in reference to a king or even to God himself, who was called the Lion of Judah. So that's how lions were thought of. Dogs were a different story back then. Now, nowadays, we name our dogs, we let our dogs sleep with us, we call them our babies, and on special occasions, I'll show you here, we even dress our dogs up, like maybe you've done this to your dog. I like that, because that dog is owning that outfit, is he not? Okay? We do this with dogs. Dogs are that precious and that close to us. Not the case during the time, the time period where the book of Ecclesiastes was penned. Back in that time, resources were far more scarce, and hardly anybody would have had personal pets. So dogs would have been these wild, feral scavengers. They were known to pick the meat off the bones of those who died in battle. So if someone referred to you as a dog, it was a huge insult. It was like an ancient form of trash talking. That's why when David was battling Goliath, Goliath, this giant, looked at David who came at him with a sling in one hand and a shepherd's staff, a stick in the other, and said, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? So dogs were thought to be people who were lowly, unwanted. If you were considered a dog, you were nothing. To be a lion meant you were respected, important, revered. You were definitely a something. Yet we all know of people in this lifetime who are considered by the world to be lions, noble, respected, important, powerful, and yet their lives were miserable. I'll give you a couple of examples. The first one, as if you are history buffs, you'll know this to be true, Alexander the Great, definitely considered a lion-type personality. I mean, the word great in his name, okay? He conquered most of the known world at the time, and he was also incredibly wealthy. He could have anything at the snap of his fingers. In his courts, there were hundreds of actors and dancers and singers to entertain him. And yet, when you read the history of his life, his last few years were filled with trouble, and they were basically joyless. He was a lion, yet he was miserable. Another one, one of my favorite stories is Muhammad Ali, and I'm dating myself, but Muhammad Ali was, was known as probably the greatest boxer, that was before MMA, the greatest boxer that ever lived. And at one point, at the pinnacle of his career, he was interviewed by this reporter. 
reporter, this female reporter, and she was at his house interviewing him. They were having a great talk, and he goes, hey, I want to show you something. And she took him out into the barn in the backyard of his house, kind of like a storage, almost like a hangar, and opened it up and showed him, and everything in there was covered with tarps. And she's going, what is this place? And he started lifting the tarps off these items, and they were trophies and awards and championship belts and paintings and photographs. She's going, this is amazing. This should be on display, like not only your house, but maybe a museum or something. And he just looked at her in very somber fashion, looked at her and said, I had the world, and it was nothing. That's what he said to her, and I've never forgotten that. Now, back to the verse we read. Better to be a live dog than a dead lion. And basically what that's saying is, better to be thought of as lowly and insignificant than to be highly regarded and yet dead inside. Jesus echoes this when he says to a group of people, what good is it if a person gains the whole world, if they have it all, and yet they forfeit their soul, they forfeit this aliveness inside of them. Yeah, don't worry about popularity and prestige. Focus on being a person whose soul is infused with the joy and vitality that comes from having a relationship with Jesus. Or as one person put it perfectly, focus on being a person who is alive with aliveness. And here's a little bit of added good news. People in your life right now might consider you a dog. They might consider you as lowly and insignificant and maybe even reject you and, and, and place that unwanted label on your life. That might happen to many of us throughout the next few weeks. People might think of you in that way, but know this, God never will, never, okay? You, in God's eyes, are a masterpiece created by the staggering genius that is God. You're a child of God made in the image of God, carrying around inside of you the very presence of God. You are not a nothing. You are a very important and deeply loved something. C.S. Lewis, the author of Chronicles of Narnia, once said, you are never going to come across an ordinary person and you will never talk to a mere mortal. And he's so right. Nobody's ordinary. Nobody's a mere mortal. Everybody is a walking, talking, breathing, laughing masterpiece created by God. Think of other people like that, but please hear that about yourself today, too. All right? Now let's move on to bread. That was dogs and lions. Let's move on to bread. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. Ship your grain across the seas. After many days, you will receive a return. Now, in most of your Bibles, that says, cast your bread upon the water, and after many days, It'll come back to you. Now, I read that and I thought, casting your bread upon the water, throwing loaves of bread out into a lake, that just seems so ridiculous and wasteful because everybody knows if bread gets wet, it disintegrates and sinks. Anybody who's ever ordered a French dip sandwich knows this to be true. You dip it in there and it gets soggy and falls apart and it plops down into your bowl of au jus sauce. They should call them French mush sandwiches instead of French dips because it falls apart and you end up eating it like soup, okay? So to say that you can toss your loaves upon the lake and after a while they will come back to you, that makes no sense at all. Go ahead, go out to Fern Ridge, get a loaf of French bread from Albertsons and toss it out there and then come back a couple of days later and see if that bread is still floating, okay? That's ludicrous. But this is yet another example 
of the alternative wisdom we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's wisdom, but it's wisdom you've got to dig for a little bit. So let's start our digging by first exploring the concept of water. Ancient people, at the time Ecclesiastes was penned, had this really <coughs> mystical understanding of water. They believed water to be a place on earth where the spiritual realm and the physical realm collided. Water was where God was, where one could experience God, which is why some ancient people preferred to pray at the banks of some body of water because they believed God was so close. Surely he'll hear my prayers if I stand this close to where he's at. That's what they believed about water. And it's easy to see why they thought this. If they read through the Bible, check this out. Here are some verses just from the Old Testament that talk about God and water. The first two out of Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So there it is, before creation even took place, before humans existed, God was hovering over water. God and water go together. Look at Psalm chapter 137. This is a poem, a rant, really, by, by, by the psalm writer. He says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. So this is a reference to the time where the nation of Israel was in captivity to the nation of Babylon. And they were disheartened, they were depressed, and they were angry, and they were hopeless. And they thought, we need to cry out to God. Maybe he'll hear our cries and rescue us out of this captivity. So where do they go to cry? By the waters of Babylon. Because they thought, I know where God is. He's by the water. He's over the water. And check this verse out. This is Psalm 29, verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty water. So in this scripture, what it's saying is, not only is water a great place to pray, because we know God will hear us there, but in the ancients' understanding, it's a great place to be so that not only will God hear us, but it's a place where we can hear God speak to us. That is so great. Even Jesus himself, when he was talking to a Samaritan woman, referred to himself as the giver of living water. God and water in Scripture always seem to go together. Now let's look at the, let's examine rather the word bread. In the Scripture we read out of Ecclesiastes, bread isn't, in this case, sustenance and food. It's actually, uh, it's actually talking about our deeds or our acts of generosity. We're invited in the verses we read earlier to be recklessly and ridiculously generous people. People who cast their bread, their acts of generosity, out to everyone in every direction. That's what we're supposed to be. And then we are told that those deeds, those acts of generosity will come back to us. So after spreading generosity, we become recipients of generosity. And Jesus echoes this truth, too, when he says to a group of people, give, and it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Now, people usually hear verses like the one in Ecclesiastes or the words that Jesus said, and they make it all about greed. They think, give, and it will be given to me, pressed down, cast my bread upon the waters, and it will come back to me. They think, that's great, so I'm going to give a little. I'm going to cast some bread upon the waters, and then God will give even more back to me. He's like some sort of heavenly slot machine that's always paying out. It's not about greed. It's never been about greed. It will never be 
about greed. That's why in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable. And he tells this parable, this story about a farmer who has a bumper crop. And he has so much produce, he can't store it all in his barns. But instead of thinking, hey, I know, I'll go and share it with the rest of the village, especially the people who don't have enough. Instead he thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. I'll hoard it all. That's what I'll do. And Jesus refers to the parable as the parable of the rich fool. Because in God's eyes, to live a life of greed is a foolish existence. So it's not about greed. This is what it's about. It's about being so ridiculously generous that you create a culture of giving around you, a community where everybody gets in on the fun of giving because giving is just that contagious. So of course your bread will come back to you. Of course your giving will be reciprocated because that's the kind of community you're a part of. You're the kind in the kind of community where people step out of their circles of greed and selfishness and are actually aware of the needs of others. That's the kind of community you help create by your own acts of generosity. Like the verse says, though, it might take many days before you become a recipient of generosity, especially if you're pioneering this, these generous acts. If you're the first person in your community of influence around you that's being a generous person, it might take a while for people to get the bug of generosity, but be patient, because eventually they will, because generosity is just that contagious. And let me also warn you, when you become a generous person, a ridiculously generous person, like this verse is talking about, people will think you're nuts. They'll look at you and go, that's so wasteful, that's so ridiculous. If you didn't give away so much, you could have nicer stuff. Why do you drive a piece of crap car? You can afford a new car if you weren't so generous. And why do you give to those people? They're not even going to tell you thank you. They're not even going to be grateful. It's such a waste. If people think like that about you, my, my encouragement to you today is give anyway. Because not only is it a blast, it's the best way to live a countercultural lifestyle. Eugene is famous for being a countercultural community. There's an inner hippie in almost every one of us who call Eugene home for long enough, isn't it? You just get used to it. You just think of yourself, I, I'm just an inner hippie. I remember a high school kid visited from Indiana in my youth group one time, and he goes, can you show me a hippie? I've never seen a real life hippie. <laughs> so some of the leaders took him down to the whip, okay, right around our church. And he saw a real life hippie for the first time in his life. But that's, that's kind of the culture all around here. But I'm telling you, being countercultural isn't about listening to Grateful Dead all the time and wearing tie-dye and dousing yourself in patchouli oil. It's not about that, okay? Being <laughs> countercultural is about being a person who chooses to live a recklessly generous life in the face of the greed that is shown to us in our culture all the time. That's what true countercultural existence is. You know, I'm a word nerd. That's kind of probably why I'm a pastor, and I deal with words all the time. So it's interesting to me that the word generous and the word genius come from the same Latin root. Even our language tells us that being generous is a genius way to live our lives. One last thing before we get on to the grimpy, gimpy grasshoppers, rather. You know, as a pastor, people, I, I probably don't go through a month of my existence without somebody coming up to me and saying, I love Jesus, but 
Pastor, can you please tell me, how can I have a closer relationship with Jesus? I hear it literally all the time, probably more than once a month. And there are a lot of answers to that question. But one of the first thing I'll, I'll tell people is, you want to be closer to Jesus? Here's how. Give. Be generous with your life. Not just in your money, in your acts of generosity, in your compassion, in your love, in your kindness, in your prayers. Give. Because as I've told you before, and even a couple of weeks ago, God is considered Trinity, the three in one. Can't totally explain it. Makes my brain hurt every time I think about it. But God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Spirit, Ruach, a female word. So you could say God is Father, Son, Mother, the first community or the first family. But that relationship between God, the Father, Son, and Spirit is one of continual love and generosity. So when you participate in generosity, you're not just participating in what God does. Sure, he, that's what he does. But you're participating in who God is because generosity is who God is at his core. So when you uh, are participating in acts of generosity in your own personal life, you're entering into who God is. And you can't get much closer to him than that. So please give. I just love that thought. And now let's move on. Let's finish with this. Gimpy grasshoppers. The book of Ecclesiastes, I dare you, read it from start to finish. It's not that long. It's only 12 chapters. Read it from start to finish, and you'll be amazed. It constantly, constantly reminds you that you're going to die. Constantly. And it doesn't do that to depress you. It doesn't say you're having way too good of a time, so God said, I'm going to put the book of Ecclesiastes in there to totally bum you out. It doesn't do it for that. It reminds you that you're going to die so that you truly engage with your life in the days that you have on this planet. The last chapter of the book is actually a poem. The first eight verses are, the rest is an epilogue. But the first eight verses are a poem that are an example of this. So I want to read the, ver the poem to you. Don't worry, only eight verses, okay? And then explain some lines that will help you make sense of it and show you how important this poem is. Let's read this poem. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I don't find any pleasure in them. I don't even know why I exist, okay? Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of the birds but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the street, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people will go to their eternal home and mourners will go about in the streets. They used to hire professional mourners for funerals back then. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and their spirit returns to God who gave it. Let me explain a few lines in this amazing, I think it's just an amazing poem. Let's start with this line. Remember your creator. It says that. And the word creator there carries some weight with it. It's not talking about just recalling who God is. 
It's more than that. It's saying, remember your creator. We call not just your creator, but your own vitality, your vigor, what keeps you alive. A great way to say that line, remember your creator while you're still young, in modern lingo, you would say this, remember God, who is the animated energy of life that is pulsing inside of you. That's what that line means. Remember God who is the animating energy of life that's pulsing inside of you. And after this, after this line, the poem moves forward to describe the aging process that we're all in. Then one of the next lines I'll call attention to is the days of trouble. This line is an idiom. It's actually a saying. It's talking about how life gets more troublesome when you get older. Things that used to be easy to you while you were young are now troublesome and problematic for you like tying your shoes. You young people go, I'm just gonna bend over and tie my shoes. Most older people bend over to tie their shoes and then they don't stand up immediately because they think, while I'm down there, I wonder if there's some other things I should be doing <laughs> while I'm bent down like this. Like maybe I should clean that bottom drawer out or something like that. And then they stand up. Life is just harder, especially back in the days of Ecclesiastes, as you grew older, okay? The second line I want to call attention to about aging, the clouds return after the rain. You know when you're young, you go through good times, but then you, I mean, you go through bad times, but then you go through good times. The sun always shines after a storm. When you get older, things change a little bit, <laughs> i got to tell you. It can sometimes feel like as you're aging, it's not the sun shining after a storm. It's just one storm lined up after another. One more ache, one more season of pain, one more experience of loss. It's just storm after storm after storm. The rain returns after the storm. The next line, when the grinder cease. This is actually... This is actually a reference to the moment your teeth fall out of your head and you have no grinders left. Really cool, huh? Then, when the doors close, that's talking about when your ears shut and you lose your sense of hearing. Then the next one, when the almond tree blossoms. If you have ever seen an almond tree blossom, this refers to the time when your hair starts to thin and turns silver or gray. And then my last and most favorite line, when the grasshopper drags itself along, I kid you not, this is actually in the Bible, grasshopper in this culture, this time period, is a euphemism for the male sexual part of their body. So I'd say when you age, the grasshopper tends to just drag itself along. The grasshopper doesn't hop like it used to. Sometimes it might not even want to hop at all. Super cheery stuff here, right? In this poem, when you read it, you feel like this big, fat bummer that just describes our slow roll into the grave. That's what it can be like. I remember in the 70s, and aging myself, but in the 70s, there was a show called Hee Haw. I'm not making this up. Hee Haw was the actual name of a show, and it was a show about country music and comedy. And in every show, they did the most unique thing. About halfway through the show, they stopped, and these two old farts came out on the stage and sang the song called Gloom, Despair, and Agony on Me. Deep, dark depression. Excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. That was the song they sang every single week, and then they'd go to tell about all their problems and troubles in life. 
throat's getting a little dry. So, and I thought about that. I thought, that's what this poem's like. It's a poem about gloom, despair, and agony on me, and then you die. You just return to the dust. But check it out. In verse 6, hope actually arrives on the scene. Because in verse 6, it mentions this phrase, when the silver cord is severed. Now, scholars argue about it all the time, about what does this mean, but I think I have a really great idea of what this means. Because, again, if you're a history buff and you read a lot, many people in all different cultures across the, the world, in all different time periods, report about having these experiences where they die for a little bit, and then they're resuscitated. And when they come back to life, they always talk about the same thing. They say, hey, when I die... Before I was resuscitated, I was having this out-of-body experience, and it was like my essence was floating above my own body, and I could see my body down there. But then they also, many of them, report the same thing. They go, and what was interesting is I'm floating above my body, but I'm still connected to my body by a silver cord. How cool is that? The same thing that they're mentioning in Ecclesiastes. So the moment that silver cord is severed is evidently the moment of our death when we step over the canyon and into the next great adventure with God. Now, it still seems depressing, huh? But it's not, because when you look at the poem as a whole, it's got this incredibly encouraging message, because the point of the poem is this. It's to get us to see that we're all heading towards that moment when the silver cord is severed and it's happening faster than we think. In fact, in the poem, our days are, are said to be meaningless. But remember, that word meaningless doesn't mean that. It's the Hebrew word havel, it means vapor. So the poem is saying this, we don't have much time on this earth. Our life here, no matter how many days we have left, is a vapor. It's going to be gone before you know it. So don't wait till your deathbed to connect to the Creator, to have experience this divine connection with God and all His glory and goodness, because that connection is too good to put off till later. Sometimes when I order lunch, especially I go up to Dakota's up in McKenzie, some of you have eaten up there, they have the best cobbler. Just the best cobbler. And sometimes I'll order it with a salad for lunch, but I'll eat the cobbler first, because the cobbler is too good to put off till later. Why should I power my way through the salad that I hate and just <laughs> eat the cobbler later? Why not start with what I love? That's what this poem is saying. Don't wait to have a connection with the divine till later. It's too good to put off. One pastor, oh my gosh, he puts the connection with God in the most brilliant way. I want to read this for us. Think of you connecting with God in this way. Can we pop this up there? Connecting with God is like a song you hear in another room. And then you think this. Wow, that sounds beautiful. But I can only hear it a little bit. So you start opening doors and you rearrange the furniture. Because you have to get into that room and hear that song. And when you get in, you find the knobs and you turn them all the way up, all the way to the right, because you're like, I gotta hear more of that. And 
and I read that for the first time, I thought, oh, that perfectly describes connecting with God. It's like this beautiful song you hear, and you got to hear more of it, and you want to get as close to it as you can, and when you do, you turn it up, because you just have to dance and move and experience God in all his glory and goodness. That is just way too good of a thing to put off till later. So don't think, hey, I'll connect with God when I die. No, connect with God while you're still alive. Your eternity starts now. Don't wait for it to start later. Let me pray for us. I've talked way too much today, but I just got all uh, excited, all right? Let me pray. Help us, God, to remember the alternative wisdom that we looked at today. Better to be thought of as lowly than to be highly regarded yet dead inside. Oh, Lord. Help us to be alive with aliveness and not to worry about prestige and popularity. And Lord, generosity is a genius idea. It's the best kind of countercultural lifestyle that our world needs more of. So today, help us to be people who create a culture of generosity around us by our contagious, generous acts. And Lord, lastly, today is the day now is the time for us to experience you, Lord. Help us not to put it off. Our time on earth is a vapor, Lord. Help us to make the most of the time we have here by remembering our Creator, by being remembered, reconnected to you. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. If you need an extra dose of prayer,